the sound of praise for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing Reverend A.R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Potasnik of Religion on the Line. The only one who could ever teach me. Now, on Talk Radio 77 WABC, here's the Reb and the Rabbi, where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend Bernard, the World Series has concluded. The election is over. For some people, there's nothing to live for anymore. They're going to have to stay home and talk to their partners or whatever. This is going to be a different experience for them. There's no distraction. Right? They rediscover that they have a wife and kids or a husband. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully they, they appreciate them even more to know that there's someone in their lives who means or should mean so much to them. It's been an interesting week. Uh, yeah. Politically, you know, a lot going. We've got a new new mayor, Eric Adams, and congrats to uh, yeah. the new mayor mayor elect. Uh, yeah. Takes office in January. Yeah. Now, let me and, just check uh, here. Is, is Curtis demanding a recount? Is that happening? <laughs> no, I just want to make I sure. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, we've known you and I have known Eric for for many many years, and we wish him well. And uh, you know, he's he's got. I know some people on the transition team, and I'm sure you know it's going to be an exhaustive search because he knows as People who are elected know you have to surround yourself with smart people. Yeah. Sometimes smarter than you are. That's that's usually the formula that works best. Um, yeah. So you have to be secure. Yeah. I, I was at an I was at an event in Washington, and uh, one of the uh, guests who were invited he he gets up and he says, you know, uh, I'm glad to be here, glad to be a part of this event, and uh, uh, thank you for honoring me. And he said, uh, I do want you to know that I have five PhDs. And the whole audience, we started applauding. And then he said, they're here with me today. And he invited them up on stage. (laughs) Yeah. Look, (laughs) Justice Breyer uh, gave a presentation, Board of Rabbis. And one of the things he mentioned is, you know, you have the the lawyers coming in presenting their oral arguments, and then the justices go into conference. And the rule is you speak, and then the other justices speak. You can't speak again until you hear everyone else. And one thing you can't say is, I think my argument is better than yours. You can't say that uh, mm-hmm. because the other person may have a better argument than you have. And you listen, then you determine that, but, but you don't announce that in advance. But this whole idea of listening to other people, surrounding yourself with people who are brilliant, who know their stuff, but may take a different position, that's a challenge. But when you're secure in who you are, you can handle that kind uh, of challenge. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And the art of communication is not in your ability to speak. It's in your ability to listen. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're a good listener, you can communicate well. But look, we're in a world of what? Talk radio. Listen to us. We're talking on the radio. Talk radio. Does that make sense? Well, I'm listening. So you're the one talking, <laughs> but I'm the one who's doing listening. So I'm the brilliant one here. Let me let me say something to you on the talk about uh, what's on the calendar for the Jewish people. And I, and I, I hope for others as well. Uh, this Sunday, you know, we look at what's coming ahead, and it's historically Kristallnacht, November 9th and 10th, 1938. It's called the Night of the Broken Glass, when uh, synagogues were attacked, uh, desecrated, and the government in Germany, Nazi Germany, just watched, did nothing to stop it. Uh, and look at what happened. It starts, you know, someone said they, they'll burn books, and then they burn people. Uh, 
because, you know, once you start destroying the culture, the religion of a people, uh, you have taken away, you know, a foundation uh, so they cannot continue. Thankfully, we're, we're here, but we, we paid such a severe price. Look how many people were lost. It's estimated if, uh, if the Holocaust had not occurred, we would be somewhere between 50 to 60 million Jews today. Where would it be, 14 million? Uh, wow. So, Less than 1% of the population. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So here we are. Um, but it's important people know. And I, I received a, a nice email from someone who said, what, what people are planning to do, people of all faiths, is uh, November the 9th, they're going to leave the lights on all night in their houses of worship or in their residence. Hmm. They want to say, our response to Kristallnacht, when they, you know, they, they darkened our, our world, we're going to illuminate that world. Uh, and I said, well, that's, that's a good response. But of course, to me, the most effective response is education. We need to have an educated, alert. you can't have a fully living people unless you have a learned people. And I think that's, that's the best way to, to deal with, you know, the hate. Anti-anti-Semitism doesn't translate into positive Judaism. You, you have to be against the anti-Semites, but you also have to be positive in terms of your commitment to the Jewish faith. So, so, so how does, you know, uh, so, so Jewish people, and I say, so how does, how, Jewish people have had to deal with the threat of genocide um, for thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, that's very real. How does that affect the psyche of a people? You know, it's, I think we've, again, we've learned that uh, we will not allow the hate mongers to have the last word. Uh, we've always said that, you know, my father spoke of tomorrow, that today, uh, is a day of darkness, but there's a dawn. Uh, and I think we've always, because of our belief in God and our belief in one another and our belief in the goodness of people, even though we saw the worst of some, we saw the best of some, mm. uh, you know, I, I've met people who've liberated death camps, people who gave their lives to save lives. You know, think of all the people in world war II who fought and how many lives were saved because of them. Um, so I, I think we've always found that, that the remedy is to fight against hatred, not to succumb because of it, uh, and to, to develop learning centers. You know, it's, it's interesting when, when Jerusalem was no longer the place for central learning, the, when the academies, the academy was not there, we established mm -hmm. academy in Babylonia, in exile. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, right. That's so right. wherever mm -hmm. we were, that book, even though some burnt it, they didn't fully destroy all the books. The books still remained, and we still continue to learn, and we're here today uh, to celebrate who we are as a people. But you're also required to build friendships, because if you're a minority, yeah. you cannot survive or, uh, beyond survive, thrive, unless you build friendships. Ed Koch so that to has say, to yeah. be, yeah, that's, hey, we that's need very real. We need friends, and you need r real friends, not not those who give you lip service, but we say we, we need body language. And and thankfully, we are at a point in time where uh, the relationships we have, and I include you as one of our great friends, the relationships we have out there uh, with the non-Jewish community mm -hmm. uh, is exceptional in many places, uh, and we are we are grateful for that. Look at look at uh, the state of Israel in terms of the relationship with America. Uh, in terms of support that it receives from America, uh, so we we we've come a long way. We 
what we say, we're not where we uh, were, we're not where we're going to be, but, you know, we're not going back to the way we were. Either. No, that's, that's important. You know, I, I'm, I'm Afro-Latino, born in Panama, came to the United States, my father white, my, my mother yeah. black. And it's about building relationships when you're in minority. And I'm a Christian, uh, unapologetically. And whereas Christianity tended to dominate, now 75% of religious persecution around the world is perpetrated against Christians. Yeah. So it's interesting what's and, happening in and, the world in which and we, we as Jews have a responsibility to speak out against that. And you know, we've often said, Rev, the person who hates me today will hate you tomorrow and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. All absolutely. right. We have an interesting guest today and someone who's been outspoken for years saying things that, you know, uh, he's not afraid to say and uh, things that we need to hear. And that's Hank Scheinkoff, who's a great political analyst uh, and uh, has political commentary that I think is important for people to uh, to hear and understand. Yeah, this is his first time on our program. I'm excited and looking forward to it. All right, stay tuned. So that means stay tuned. We'll be right back. With right more. here on 77 WABC. With, with more the Rev pro- and the Rabbi. Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Tasnick. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend Bernard, I want you to know that whenever I have any question about the political climate, I turn to one person, Hank Scheinkoff. First of all, he's got a PhD in political science. He's a great political analyst, and he's also a rabbi. Great honor to have you, Hank Scheinkoff, with the Reverend the Rabbi. Well, I couldn't have been with two better people under any circumstances than you two. Well, you see, I mean, Rev, you're great, see how good his judgment is? You're a great clergyman. You do extraordinary things for your congregations and for the city in which we live. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Uh, well, he's got both covered, the yeah, uh, yeah. No, Old and good. New Testament. Excuse me, the and, Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. And by the way, <laughs> and Hank can preach. He, he also gives these pearls of wisdom from the Torah and the Talmud, so he's a great student of Jewish tradition. Excellent. So Hank, where do we begin, Rabbi? Yeah. I think we ought to begin with the election results, Hank. Uh, many have said this is a repudiation of woke. How do you? Uh, what's your overview on the election results? I don't think it's an, an, a repudiation of woke. I think that voters don't think in those kinds of concepts. What this is was a predictable response to, um, and, and there are a lot of people who are not going to like what I say, but um, you know the, the original theory of broken windows theory that uh, written by, a, by the late political scientist uh, James Q. Wilson and his partner, William Willing, I think, and what they talked about was disorder as an argument. And that when people see disorder, other things seem to happen and they respond to them. What voters saw was disorder in Washington. They saw a government that seemed to be not productive, not necessarily out of control, but not productive, that things were at a standstill, that the items they had been promised, in some cases, reports portions of the, of the high-propensity voting Democratic electorate were not being delivered. And then on the other side of it, for those in the middle and also on the left, it didn't matter. Um, what they saw was an increase in gun violence throughout the country. Homicides were up. Um, and they heard about defunding the police, which they didn't particularly care for at all. They put it together in a bad, uh, in a bad omelet, and it came out uh, not tasting very good for the Democrats. And it's just the beginning. This was a midterm within the midterm, uh, my fellow clergymen, without question. So does it say that one political party represents uh, the answer to disorder more than another political party? Or is that just the impression to give no, it's, it, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon, Rembrandt, I'm, and I'm glad, you, I'm glad you raised it. 
if you look back in American political history of the last years, let's take Jimmy Carter, for example. The disorder that occurred was the hostage situation in, uh, in Iran, which is a national embarrassment and was very unsettling, like the chaos in Washington, but not as extreme. And the, uh, gas, the gas embargo, the oil embargo by the Arabs, Arab states, which resulted in extreme uh, increases in gas prices. You put that together with an economy that had inflation that seemed to be unmanageable and goodbye, Carter, and hello, Ronald Reagan, with extreme mm. numbers. I mean, the, the, the response was extreme. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, Bush won, a great American hero in the Second World War, unquestionably, man who served his nation with distinction in other roles, um, the commander-in-chief of the victorious American armies in the first Gulf War, where, uh, the, where the strategic result was achieved with the minimum loss of life. What happens? He gets defeated for a second term because the economy is not necessarily responsive, but he's not responding to the economic conditions and is seen as someone who, when asked questions, just can't respond appropriately. And hmm. the, resp- the, the American public says, oh, yeah, that's very nice. Goodbye. And that's that. So, Hank, let me ask you, you know, people often say, I hear this from members of the Democratic Party, we're not ruled by the squad. They're just a handful of people. Uh, we're, we outnumber them. And yet when it comes to crafting legislation, uh, it seems that that small group allegedly has disproportionate influence. Well, you know, Rabbi, they are much better at, uh, at communication. They're younger. They are more topical. And they are a social movement. They're not a political entity, the squad. They're really not interested. You know, let's go back to what social movements are. And we have pretty good examples. We had the Townsend movement in American history, a social movement. Sole goal was to uh, uh, make sure that there were public pensions. Social Security gets enacted. And guess what? And uh, the Townsend movement. Next. Uh, The Civil Rights Movement has had serious problems, if at all. It doesn't really function the same way it did after the passage of the 1960, uh, let's see, Johnson Civil Rights Act. Why? Because it achieved its goal. The um, the foreign uh, the farm workers movement gets no I'm sorry gets legislation passed permitting farm workers to organize, and there's a farm workers movement. Anytime these movements achieve their goal, they tend to become uh, not they become less relevant certainly and disappear in most cases, or parts of them may remain. The social movement that is the squad is not interested really in passing legislation. The social movement that is the squad is interested in creating a social movement that pushes for broader change in a whole series of areas. And frankly, therefore, if they achieve their goal, they will be out of business. It is far easier to stop things from happening by calling them insufficient or not what they wanted or does not meet the task. Uh, Stopping Amazon would be one way to think about it. Um, And the movement goes on. So there you have it. Interesting. So they stopped Amazon. 25,000 jobs were lost. And what, what did that accomplish in their eyes? In their eyes, it accomplished an attack on corporations and reduction of their power and also put politicians on notice that normative means of, of behavior and normative means of dealing with each other in the public sphere was now over forever. And if you take a moment and you look at things, you know, you say, what is really happening? Well, you have a response to the, the chaos or the disorder on the left, the squad, and a response to the chaos and disorder on the right called the right. The January 6th uh, insurrection is one kind of response. The squad's behavior to slow down this legislation and, frankly, maybe kill it. That would uh, provide the, the, the new stimulus to the economy and to the social conditions um, and the social divide and the uh, income gap that we face 
in some ways, not going to deal with it entirely, but certainly helps, is another way. Because both of those acts tend to disrupt and also ensure that nothing happens at the same time Mm. in a global sense. So are we looking at a potential uh, Trump campaign president for president in 2024? I don't I don't think it's Trump. I think that we are. Um, I, I spell well, let me back it up from a uh, scholarly perspective. Something I've been interested in for the last couple of years more than usual is authoritarianism. And I've read now, I guess, about 20, 20 different authors uh, from the scholarly to the mundane. And I keep coming back with the same conclusion. The democracy fails not because of, of uh, something outside of democracy occurring. Democracy fails because democracy is used by those who wish democratic systems no good. Um, they use those systems to create totalitarian settings. The Nazis did it not through, uh, not through uh, a takeover of the government. What they did was they used democratic means to get elected, and then they took over the government. The uh, mm. Soviets, uh, Lenin. That power, after knocking off Kerensky, he didn't kill him. He took, over the, he took over the government. And there are other examples of this. The whittling away of freedom, the failure to understand truth, the destruction of religion and Democrat, which is, I believe, a means of ensuring democratic uh, and democratic societies, ensuring that there's some kind of pluralism. All of these things act simply to end the destruction of the civic culture. Um, which is not new and has been going on, frankly, probably since the end of the Second World War. Television is one means of the death of the fraternal organizations, the Masons, the Kiwanians, the Lions, um, the, uh, the, the, the groups that form in churches, frankly, to continue the civic culture. Um, all of that happening weakens democracy and creates extremes because there is no place to meet in the center. Government works best when it's in the center where you have some place where people of diverse opinions can meet and not slug each other, but at least go back to their business with, the, with some uni- unified idea about what the society should be. We don't have that anymore. We have clashes across, across, the, uh, across the political spectrum, spurred in many cases by economics. And unless we find a way to repair the income and resource gap rather quickly, it's going to get worse. It's Hank, going to get worse. Hank, help me understand something. I've known you for years. I've always respected you. You're a person uh, who's got a spine. You're not afraid to stand up and say what you feel uh, should be said and should be heard. You have right. in, in Congress today, there are those who uh, will mouth some uh, anti-Semitic statements. You know, we've heard it right. from Omar, we've heard it from Tlaib. And yet, the spine is missing from many of the other members. You know, yep. they have, there was that uh, condemnation of uh, hatred. It was the most diluted resolution I've ever seen. Uh, but it didn't really go specifically at the anti-Semitic well, statement. Why? Joe, I mean, well, I'm Joe. Let, let's 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 be clear about a couple of things. The position of Jews in this society is changing rather rapidly, and not for the good. And there are a couple of reasons for it. Um, and you don't have to be an alarmist. You have to just understand history and have to understand uh, the notion of economic issues. This is no longer a European-based country. So Jews, by definition, then become alien to some extent. This is a country that uh, we are quickly becoming uh, less interested in things in the Middle East and more interested, sadly, in things that in, were, were reflective of the populations mm-hmm. that are now coming to power in the Caribbean, in South America, in, in, Latin, in uh, Asia. Um, it's, it's, just, it's just different. Europe is no longer as important as it was. The tragedy here is that people need to go back and look at Harry Truman's presidency. 
He committed and created something called the Truman Doctrine to ensure that the, that the Mediterranean basin uh, would not fall into the hands of the Soviets for fear that that would create a strategic military and, frankly, economic problem for the United States of America. He was right. Today we see an unraveling of, of, the, of interest over time in that portion of the world using Israel and anti-Semitism as a means to make that decision. If it occurs as the way people think it might, they'll be eating grass in this country in 10 to 15 years because the sea lanes and the cargo lanes will be blocked by the Russians who don't love us and their friends, the Chinese. And they, they, had to, they have to cooperate because the Russians can't exist without Chinese help. Because why? Because they have nothing to offer but natural gas in a world where the need for fuel is changing. They don't have an economy. The Chinese are the problem long term, and the Chinese understand the Middle East, and the Americans who are in Congress today largely don't get the point. That's number problem number one. Problem number two is the income gap. When you look at European history much before Hitler, probably 10 years before Hitler at the bottom, what you see in Hungary, Romania, and Poland were economic systems where the economic distinctions were extreme, where the Jews were very prominent, and by dint of their behavior were able to be in the universities in, in significant numbers, what some would argue beyond their, beyond their uh, percent of the population. And at some point, the governments in those countries decided that was no longer going to happen. And what they did was they, uh, they shut down Jews and isolated them from university attendance and isolated them from the economy. That competition is a real one. And the, and the, the failure to come up with the, a reasonable tax code and other things that could be done by government to reduce the income gap and to allow African-Americans, for example, easier access into the middle class and easier access to the transfer of property intergenerationally would be, would be something maybe that could calm this, but that's not what we're seeing out of Washington. What we're seeing hmm. is a non-policy environment driven by tribalism within the Congress, resulting in increased tension between groups and greater jealousy and greater violence. What's new? Hmm. Interesting. History repeats itself. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. Talk Radio 77 WABC and the all-new WABCRadio.com. Well, I, that's what I'm going to ask because, I, you know, you have a broad view of history. Is it cyclical? Do we go from, from poverty to complacency to uh, crisis to, you know, a renewal back to... Uh, poverty and complacency. It's not clear what's going to happen. I think people who think they can predict this are being, they're being naive or they're being arrogant or they're being smarter than people like me, which is all possible in all cases or a combination thereof. The problem here, Reverend, is that we rely on the word democracy as the foil to say it will all work out. What we fail to understand and fail to tell ourselves appropriately and honestly is that democracy is not a growth industry. It's not a growth industry. It is not working in other parts of the world because forces opposed to the free will and expression of, excuse me, I'm sorry, free expression and free will and, um, and, and kind of a amalgam, not amalgamation so much, but the blending of cultures in a, in a secure environment are not what's happening in the rest of the world. If you look at Brazil, Bolsonaro, right? Or Hungary, Orban. Um, the, chaos, the incessant chaos in Africa, which has colonial roots, but also has tribal roots. And also the West refuses to intervene in, let, in non-military fashion to try to bring groups together to create the working, working, working kinds of, of polities. 
P-O-L-I-T-I-E-S. I mean, that's, we're just not, we're not thinking about this in a clear way. We may not be able to export democracy, but we need worldwide, but we should be able to export it outside of Washington. The trend is internationally there, is not good. Is there anyone besides you, uh, Hank, that's having this conversation, that brings this perspective? No. Any organization of influence? I mean, who's out there I don't know, but, getting what well, you're getting? Reverend, Reverend, there are so many good scholars who are very concerned. There's a fellow at NYU, a Polish fellow. I don't want to be rotten and mispronounce his name, which begins with a P. He's a political scientist, comparative political scientist. He understands the issue that the, that the income gap and the resource gap are directly relational to the decline and or destruction of democracy. Or the destruction, rather, more importantly, of uh, the creation of authoritarian um, more authoritarian governments. There are people writing about it. Um, Ann Applebaum has written about the, the, what happens when you have uh, when you have these kind of violent uh, dictatorships or, or inability to control human behavior in a healthy way. I mean, you know, we're seeing we're seeing a breakdown of norms that, in some ways, is good because there are some things that just should not be regulated. But we're seeing a breakdown of other norms that are not good at all. No one is saying, no one is, there are very few standing up saying this is not acceptable behavior. I'm not talking about what people do in the privacy of their bedroom. I'm talking about on the streets, um, in our halls of Congress, in our discourse. There is no shame. And that is frankly mis- misinterpreted as a, uh, as a uh, religious argument rather than a, rather than a societal one. We are losing the capacity. We are losing the capacity to relate to ourselves as humans in a free society. So what do you? And, what, um, it's perplexing because yeah. I, we we America has the resources. We have some of the greatest minds in our midst, but we don't access those minds in order to bring solutions to the problems that we're facing. Well, we're dumbing Why? down people as well. I mean, I I, I just I'm shocked. Um, I'm amazed by the by the things I see and the discourse that doesn't occur. And I'm also amazed. I teach graduate students as well. I'm amazed by how much they want to know and how much they're not, how much and how they need to find their way. I mean, we have a generation of people who really want to do what is right and live in a, in a democratic free society. We just have to help them get there. But with these institutions breaking down, you know, look, look just the decline of religion in, in the United States. We were once, according to Tocqueville, this was in the 1830s, I guess. He came back to Europe. He said, look, the most overorganized religious society in the world. We are now less organized, probably. We're very balkanized. The internet is the organizing tool. Um, and we are less religious. Uh, we have a significant portion of the Jewish population saying that they are Jews, but not religious or not engaged. We have large portions of non-Jews, Christians, and others who are non-participants. Um, we see religious institutions and cultural institutions being sold off for dollars because they can't survive anymore. I mean, at some point, we have to... Re- people with a small eye into the culture, regardless of race, religion, or, or so, uh, you know, we don't, what is the joining argument anymore? It can't be 1031 exchanges and how much money you made last week. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. Hank, you talk about, you know, the breakdown of democracy and, right. you know, the threats facing us. Tell, tell us some corrective actions you see could be taking. If you were in a position of power, for example, what would you do? What would you suggest what would I suggest right away? First yeah. of all, I do. I'd immediately change the tax code. I would immediately. Um, I would immediately um, figure out ways to get um, to get more income 
I get rid of first. I get rid of carried interest. I get rid of the privilege class, and I'd make uh, I'd use religious institutions and communities as uh, as uh, locations for. Uh, for I bring back probation as a, as opposed to uh, jailing for light sentences, and have the religious community, religious leaders like you, supervise people in the community. I'd be using those resources. I'd put my money back into the New York City Housing Authority, where it should have been the first place, and force the federal government to meet its commitment. And I wouldn't let the politicians say, well, look at what those other guys did. Um, I'd start holding politicians directly responsible, if I were a civic leader, for their actions on a weekly basis. And I'd make sure that we know what, what they are actually doing, not what they tell us in their newsletters. Those things would start. I'd bring back civics education in every school, and it would be required for students at all levels to take civics. Mm-hmm. Not not as a determinant of what they should think, but so they know how government functions, so their expectations are realistic, and so that they can, frankly, um, be part of the world around them. I also believe in, in national service of some kind. We, you know, my generation was drafted. My brothers uh, and I, you know, all of us were, were we served the nation or the city or the state in some way, um, either in the army or in the poli- as police officers or something else. We don't we don't have that sense of belonging. The army and the services have become a volunteer entity for the benefit for the benefit of the whole at the expense of the few. We're just not we've got to find things that join us together. And so long as we don't, we're going to have more people ripping us apart. Interesting. And we need signs that say you cannot do that. You just can't do that. I'm not talking about sexual behavior again. Forgive me. There's a, that's a police car passing. I'm talking about behavior toward others in the common space and understanding the politics of our, our of space is a whole different discussion. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about just saying we need affordable housing. I mean, all these glib words don't and phrases don't do the job. We have to have actors that are believable and real and tangible and identifiable doing those things. So that our faith in each other and in our religiosity and in our institutions and in our government is restored as opposed to being service mechanisms. We need to be talking about participatory mechanisms. It's a different question. I was talking to some people in the news department about the apathy, the the failure of so many people, the the lack of commitment to voting. You see the number of people that uh, you see the number of people that voted in the last municipal election, about 20 percent of eligible voters. that that doesn't get us where we need to go when you only have a a small percentage voting we are outsourcing democracy we're tell others will do it or others will pay for it or others will provide the bodies our churches our religious institutions our schools ought to be places where we say to people look get out there and we might want to mandate it you know i worked in places around the world as you know joe doing Mm. doing a camp working on political campaigns i worked all over the all over the all over the globe I saw people standing online for hours at a clip. I was in places where there were coups because people wanted freedom, you know, where violence was the norm. This is not about the glorification of democracy. It's about the glorification of human beings. The founding fathers, for all their problems, we, you know, taking Jefferson down is something for another day. But, you know, I'm sorry about slavery. I, I feel pain, and I learn more every day. Um, you know, who comes from people who are enslaved for 400 years and um, and who are then brutalized for a thousand years before that but i i i brutalized a thousand years afterwards but the point is uh, that's not fair we're brutalized for a thousand years in europe uh, before long before the uh, the hitler's excess is uh, extraordinary but you know we have to join our pain into action or we're not going to have anything left at all 
Interesting. Just not. It's not going to work out. You can't have these kinds of gaps and expect things to go forward. You just can't. And what do we say? What do we say to those individuals who have the competence and the capacity and the passion, but they're just fed up with the the the, the vitriol, the 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 verbal violence, the emotional violence perpetrated against anyone who wants to run for political office uh, by those who disagree with them. Well, we have to somehow come up with campaign finance reform that works. Um, independent expenditures are all well and good for the people that can afford to contribute to be independent. For the rest of us, we have to listen to gobbledygook and garbage on television. Now, I've worked in countries where you can't go up in a year but for a week before um, or something like that. You can't spend this kind of money. And as long as money controls our political discourse, we're not going to have much stuff. We're going to have money, but we won't have discourse. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, well it's a different question. I mean, discourse is just something that uh, seems to be something we used to have but don't have anymore. I mean, it's very hard to have a civil discussion with someone taking a different point of view without being denigrated. You know, that's true. The public arena is an ugly place for discussion. Well, and, it is. And, and we have a responsibility. Rev and I talk about this all the time. Moral leadership is required. People cannot, we can't just close our eyes to it. We can't, you know, say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. We have to do something about it. That's, that was the prophetic voice. But as a clergyman and as a scholar, which I am in both cases, <laughs> um, I would argue that our place is to create morality by creating relationships, not by using morality for another purpose. What the, what, the, hmm. what the right has done is to use morality as a means to segregate us. I think the morality has to be in how we relate to one another and how we, we love each other, because that is the message of the good book. And with that, gentlemen, I'm about done. I'm talked out. All right. Uh, Hank Shikoff. You know, yeah. uh, it's, always, it's always good to be with you, Hank, listen to you, because uh, we learn something new. Thanks so much for being with us. All the best. Thank Thanks. you Bye. for being with us. Yeah. You're listening to 77 WABC, The Rev and the Rabbi, and we'll be back for more. Stay tuned. Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, Talk Radio 77 WABC, and the all-new WABCradio.com. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Rabbi, I'm telling you, I was taking notes. I took two pages you don't of write notes that and fast. tried Come to tell you in the conversation. Hey, I was a great student. I took <laughs> notes. But I'm serious. I mean, he covered so much territory. Yeah. I can you imagine what the kids in his class go through. Uh, I, I, I cannot imagine. Uh, but they, they come out enriched, that's for sure. Hank has got a brilliant, insightful mind. So one of the things that still troubles me uh, is... When there is a comment made by a member of Congress, whether it's anti-Semitic, whether it's whatever the anti is, it needs to be condemned immediately. That comment, not bringing in this whole variety of, you know, of transgressions, but talk about specifically what was said. Go after the person for what that person said. That, to me, requires, that's a spine. That's, that's courage. You got to stand up and say what you believe, because when you're running for office, that's what you talk about. I'm a person, a principle. I stand for the following, but when it comes to being in that arena and you don't stand up to me, you're a coward. To me, you're betraying everything that you promised you would behold, the, that you would uphold. So I, I, I don't get it fully, Rabbi. But you, I, look, yeah, it takes moral courage to do that. But people are thinking about what it's going to cost them. 
I will tell you, fear drives a lot of what we do or fail to do in our society in this climate that we've been for, gosh, more than a decade, but especially over the last two years. So when we elect people, do we expect them to stand up for what they believe is right and what needs to be said or to cower in fear when they're, they're afraid uh, to take on those who, who make these kinds of uh, declarations? Well, I look, I look, look at what Sheinkoff said. You know, uh, he, he said that people tend to vote based upon who they feel will best respond to the crisis at hand. Uh, that's, that's very real. It's yeah. true. Yeah. You know, whether it's an economic crisis. I, look, remember when Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid? Mm-hmm. He, he wins the election. Yeah. He yeah. wins the election off of that statement just pointing to the economy. And people were, you know, con- very concerned about the economy. So if the concern shifts to order, because we've come through a pandemic, we've come through uh, social uprising, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, the protests, what are people going to look for? Who is going to restore order? Because that's going to affect the economy. I mean, look, we've got a new mayor. Congratulations to Eric Adams, right? Mm-hmm. We've got a new mayor elect of New York City. Uh, but what are people going to be concerned about? How is he going to reduce crime? Mm-hmm. How is he going to respond to issues of safety? Because that affects our pocketbook. Mm-hmm. But in that equation, hatred has to be addressed. When there's rising anti-Semitism, rising prejudice against other communities, I expect a leader to stand up and shout. Not to whisper, not to be silent, but to shout. And I cannot respect those who don't stand up and say which is right. It may not be the top of the agenda, but it has to be on the agenda. Uh, and it's, as Hank was saying, you know, we expect, we expect the religious voice to be heard. There's a, a, a critical role for those who are faith representatives. And we've often said, you and I, the prophetic voice cannot become muted. You can do that on the computer, but it, it can't. Ha- it shouldn't happen in real life. And I, I just think we have to be louder. We have to be more visible, uh, and and take on those who are afraid to take on uh, those who who hurt us in different ways. I agree with you. I agree. I look. You're 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 in the book, man. Isaiah, cry loud and spare not. Right? Yeah. And we do have to have those voices. While those are like the Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, lamenting for the people and the state of affairs, the condition of things, we have to have those also, like an Isaiah, who cries out and said, this is wrong. This needs to change. And, and by Absolutely. The, by the way, they would confront the leadership. It wasn't just crying out in the wilderness. It wasn't just crying out to, you know, uh, the people who were their followers. It was crying out against those who violated, you know, those norms. They didn't mind going to kings and telling them, you're wrong. Um, and, and I just think that we cannot be timid uh, in this battle. And if I could be pragmatic, Rev, what are they going to do to us? <laughs> After all these years, <laughs> what are they going to do to us? Right? But and I don't point, even think of those terms. You know, it's, we say bring it, bring it on. Yeah, bring you know, it, bring we it, have bring to do what's right. And whatever consequences there are, accept them. But we but, cannot allow them to rule the day with their apathy, with their silence. It's just offensive to me. You're right. You're absolutely right. And you're pointing to the most important 
aspect of the prophetic role that we mm -hmm. play in society. You know, too often, especially, you know, in, in, in our, we just come out of uh, 2020 where the so-called prophets were trying to predict the outcome of an election. The prophetic is predictive to the future, but primarily analytical to the present. The prophets would analyze, evaluate the spiritual, moral, political, economic, social conditions of the society, and then speak into it a word from God. And if, they, if the people didn't get their act together, then the prophet became predictive, simply saying, based upon your failure to change, this is what's going to happen. This is what all of this is going to lead to. So what is important is our analysis of what's going on and a response to that analysis. That's our prophetic voice, urging those in power to measure their judgments and their decisions based upon a moral standard. That's where we come in. And that moral core has to, that has to be strong. That has to be uh, evident. It, it can't be covered uh, because someone is afraid, what's going to happen if I say something? You know, I'm going to get the person angry and the person may, you know, no longer deal with me. That, that's, that's not acceptable anymore. And the prophet wasn't afraid. Uh, no. You know, it's interesting, yeah. the word for community, I think I may have mentioned to you, the word for community in Hebrew, kihila, has the word kol, has the word voice in it. Because if you're a community, you have to be a community of voices. You can't be, you know, the, 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 the silent. Uh, I often refer to that in the Bible, you know, remember the, the golden calf? And mm, yeah. people ask, where was Aaron? Why, why didn't Aaron stop it? He was the leader at the time Moses was up on the mountain. Where was Aaron? Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at it, it wasn't the best, you know, the best foot forward for Aaron uh, because yeah. he was trying to make peace and keep quiet and, you know, maybe behind the scenes negotiation. It didn't work. So Jewish tradition teaches us that silence is not golden. It's a golden calf. And well, since, uh, you know, look, sometimes it's, it's golden, sometimes it's just yellow. <laughs> yeah. Tarnished, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, like what you, I like what Hank said. He said, the center is a place where people with different ideas come together and collaborate. And that's what we're missing. He's absolutely right. We've got people shouting from the extremes, right so, and left. So, so I ask you this. Look at the national election uh, that took place. You had, what, 70 million votes for Trump, 75 uh, for uh, Biden. And I don't want to get into that whole stop to steal. Se se let, 74, let, 74. Yeah, I, I don't want to get into all of that <laughs> stuff. You know, let, let's, let, let's talk about what we know, not what we, we think we know or uh, what others think uh, took place. But don't you think if you're in an elected position and you know the country is divided in that way, why not find a place of consensus, place where we can have some agreement? Why veer more in one place when you have? Uh, <laughs> but that's not why they were elected. They got elected because they were screaming the extremes, because they were representing the yeah, extremes. I, I wonder. I, you know, I, I think we've, we've relinquished authority to a smaller group because they're, as Hank said, because they're proficient in using social media, uh, we allow them to say, say more to more people because they're using technology that is not being used efficiently and effectively 
by the other side. Well, he said they, they, they use democracy to take over the government. It's not like they want to take over the government no. at, 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 you know, by force. They want to use a democratic system to shape a certain vision for this country, how people should live and how society should be organized. You know, I don't know. We have two parties in this country that go at each other for the most part. And you look at other where they have five, six parties. Uh, you know, I don't know um, where we go with this. Yeah, well, in Israel, we have a lot more than six parties. And somehow they, <laughs> they make it work uh, time after time. But uh, look, I, I, I just think that uh, we're better than that. We should be better than that. And uh, we just can't allow this collision course to continue because nothing gets done. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, real disenchantment with democracy when it doesn't work effectively. And uh, we could be, and also the, the apathy, because when you have this kind of behavior, people say a plague on both their houses. What do I have to vote for? What am I going to get? It's going to be a repeat of the same. And until we see some meaningful change, people who take it seriously and really look to bring us together, I think a lot of people are going to just sit back and watch this, you know, uh, this non-performance and say, I don't matter anymore, so why should I even vote? Yeah, I, I, I know. And I, I, we've gotten away from the American vision, you know. I, I like what uh, Hank said. He said, democracy is not a growth industry. You know, essentially he was saying... Free will and, and, and the blending of culture doesn't work everywhere in the world, but it should be working here. That's what we were established on. People coming together, a blending of cultures. You know, it was also very painful to hear because you and I know that when you look at affiliation rates with uh, in the world of religion, that's not a growth industry right now. It was a growth industry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we're seeing a diminution. And, you know, you we got to do. We got to be better at trying to get people to return because they're not going to find that kind of fulfillment in the secular world. It just isn't there. And we've heard from a number of secularists over the years who said, "You know, I thought there was more, and I see there isn't." Uh, and many of them have returned, but not the numbers we need to see. Yeah, uh, no. These are good points for consideration. I've really enjoyed the conversation with Hank. Oh, no, it was fantastic. Well, here, here's some good news that make you and our audience feel better. The Bible is still the number one best-selling book in the world. And, True statistic. Well, Did you hear that? Interesting. And you know what I find? People who have the Bible usually have more than one copy of it. Well, right? well let me go let, to my. I get different copies of different <laughs> different Bibles. One one book is not enough. <laughs> well, let me let me add another statistic. It's the Bible is also the most shoplifted book in the world. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad. What do you think? Well, obviously, they haven't come up to the that chapter that says don't steal. Okay. You know, well, we'll give them some time to get to that. As <laughs> soon as they get to that, you're going to see shoplifting decrease. <laughs> okay. Great program. All right. Rabbi. Thanks so much. Look forward to being with you next week. On For more of the Dynamic Duo, the, the Rev and the Rabbi, WABC Talk Radio 77 on your dial.